you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. And our deeds keep us from coming back and craving God more than what we're craving here. And we're no longer known for being a follower of Jesus Christ, but we're known for whatever it is we're craving. Because that's what our life's really about. And that's when we become a trap. We become a trap to other Christians. Because we still call ourselves a believer in Jesus Christ. We still, we still go to church. We still do the things that Christians do. But we're not living a life of worship and surrender to God. He's not the ultimate craving in our life. And so when we live like that and other people see that, you know what it does? It gives them permission to live the same way. And we're a trap. Now, there is a lot of gray area. When it comes to talking about cravings and loving God and, you know, do I love something or someone more than God? There's, there's a lot of gray area there, but there is a truth test to know if this gray in my life is darker than it, than it should be. If I need to hear this and that test is this, can I give up whatever it is I'm craving if God asked me to give it up? Can I give it up? Now, if you look at uh, the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler, that's where this truth test is. It's Matthew 19. So the rich young ruler, the guy comes to Jesus and he asks him, hey, what do I have to do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the Ten Commandments, second half of them, you know, which all have to do with loving, loving your neighbor. And the guy says, yeah, I'm doing that. And Jesus then says to him, but you need to get rid of your idol." You need to give up your idol. Take all your possessions, sell them, and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And that treasure in heaven, you know what that was? What, it, what that treasure in heaven is? God. See, the man went away sad. Not because he had a lot of money, but because all that money had him. He wasn't willing to give it up. That's the truth test. If you're not willing to put the death of things in Colossians chapter 3, then it's said there, if you'd rather have a white castle or whatever, fill in the blank, than God, then you've got an idol problem in your life. And he wants to speak truth to you. Listen, he, he loves you so much. He is jealous for your full devotion. He doesn't want just a part of your life. He wants all of your life. And when we talk about God being a jealous God, we can't think of it him being jealous like we're jealous. You know, like we're insecure, so we're jealous. Or we're, in, we're, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're jealous, so we get, it's an angry jealousy. And we, and we start, you know, manipulating people because we're jealous. That's not God. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is holy. And our best life is living fully devoted to him. And that's what he wants. That's what he deserves. That's the kind of jealousy. So what he does is he brings discipline in our life. And that starts with truth. He wants to break us of our idolatries. He wants us to crave him more than anything else. So he starts with truth. So does that speak to you today? 
Is that truth for you today? Because, you know, this idolatry stuff is going to come up again. It's right at the root of our relationship with God. It's right at the root of it. As you keep going through Hosea, it'll, it'll come up again. It's a, it's a big deal. But for today, just answer yourself the question. Make yourself a crave list. What do I crave? And just start putting it down. Just start writing it down. Just start there. It might be White Castle. I don't know. Maybe it won't make the list, but that's okay. That's all right. Okay, so love keeps working in verses 5 to 7. But here it's different. He starts working with, ab- with his absence. Okay, so let's read verses 5 to 7. So the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So Israel's pride was going to witness uh, to their guilt. Because they weren't hiding what they were doing. They were doing it out in the open. So they were being prideful about that, all of their activities. So instead of hiding it, and, you know, uh, they, they were doing it out in the go. But what it says, they were, conti- they were continuing to go to the temple with their flocks and their herds. So they were continuing to seek God and seek his forgiveness the way he told them to do. They were working at keeping the letter of the law. And God says, you're dealing faithlessly uh, with him. And so they came to church like everything was okay. But on the outside, everything was not okay. It was the exact, exactly the opposite. They were steeped in paganism and sin. They were having alien children. That's third chair children. Now, what do do I mean by that? Well, listen, it only takes three generations for kids to forget God. Okay, so you got the first chair, first chair people, first generation people. They have, uh, they've heard about God. They know God. They've seen God work in their life. They've experienced him and they trust him. And so when they have children, they tell their children about their God. They try to pass on their faith. Okay, so those second chair children, the second generation children, they've heard about God, but they really haven't experienced him. They haven't trusted him. And so when they grow up and they have children, they don't tell their children about God. They don't try to pass down their faith because they can't pass down something that they don't have. And so those third chair children, they grow up and they don't know God at all. They're alien children to him. And that's what was happening in Israel. They're having kids and they knew nothing about the Lord. And so God is working in his absence with them. Um, They were going to temple to meet with him, but he wasn't meeting with them. And so he says, when they come to meet with me, he doesn't meet with them because they aren't coming for him. They're coming for them. When they come to meet with him, he doesn't meet with them because they aren't coming for him. They're coming for them. I cannot think of a worse form of discipline than seeking the Lord and not being able to find him. Last year, I did this extended fast before Easter. And um, I was wanting to seek seek the Lord. 
uh, seek his presence. So I was working hard to make it about that and not what I was trying to seek his face and not his hand. You know, so I was wanting to just have more of him and not more of what he could do for me. And so I'm, I'm fasting and I'm seeking him. And, you know, I got this pretty extensive prayer list and I'm like, you know, Lord, I want you to show up in these places. I want to see your life overcome our death in these places. And so I'm seeking him and looking for him in his word and, and for him to speak. And I'm, I'm doing this very consistently um, day after day. But the problem was I didn't think he was meeting with me. So, so what it felt like to me was I was going to up to the door of the throne room and God was not in there. I was banging on the door and he wasn't opening and letting me in. That's what it, that's what it felt like. So he hadn't spoken to me through his word, and uh, I didn't really feel his, his presence in prayer. And, and I, was, I was reading in the word, and I, I was reading in Chronicles, and I got to Second Chronicles chapter 32. And in there it's talking about King Hezekiah. And that happens to be the king that was in, reigning in Judah when Hosea was writing. Okay, So there's a litany of things that he did that was good. And so we get to the end of chapter 32, and some officials come from Babylon to meet with King Hezekiah. Now, Babylon was an enemy of God, so or an enemy of God's people. So um doesn't say why they came, but presumably it was to get Hezekiah to form an alliance with them, which is something God wouldn't want him to do. And he was bringing all these reforms. And so what, the, what it said in verse 31 is that God left him to himself to test all that was in his heart. God left him to himself to test all that was in his heart. So God was using his absence to see if Hezekiah would be faithful to him even when he wasn't there. That's working with his absence. And that's what was happening to me during, during that fast. I was in the throne room with God. He was there present in my prayer time and he was seeing my fasting. He was paying attention to it, but he had withdrawn his presence from me to test me to see what was going on in my heart. Now, the thing is, he already knew, but I didn't. I didn't know what was going on in my heart. So the test of his absence wasn't really for him. It was for me. For me to find out what was going on in my heart. I'm the one that needed to see what needed to change. When he wasn't to be found, would I still seek him? Would I stay up all night and cry out to God when it didn't seem like he was hearing me? So I was pretty messed up (laughs) when I couldn't. When I, when I was, felt like I was beating on the door. I mean, I was afraid. I, I was angry. I was desperate. I was confused. And I'm reading through Chronicles, and I get there to that, that verse, and I, I found in my journal what I wrote that day. Second Chronicles 32, 31 seemed to be an encouragement from you, Lord. If you are testing me, give me the grace to know how to pass. There is no one I would rather please more than my Abba. Search my heart and let me see all that is going on in there. Break to pieces all the idols of my heart and make me a man after you. I love you and I want to love you more. His absence was working me over. It it rocked, it rocked my world. I was seeking him so hard and I could could not. 
seem to find him. God's absence is going on here in this chapter with the Israelite worship at temple. He was working on them in, in, a, in a different way. If he would have shown up, it would have been an approval of their lifestyle. It would have been accepting their offering, granting forgiveness, and they would have, they would have just gone on and nothing would have changed. <clears throat> but he was showing them his disapproval for their lives by being absent from their worship. But you know what? It didn't seem to bother them. They just kept coming with their flocks and their herds. They kept going through the motions of what they were supposed to do, but their hearts were somewhere else, with someone else. When God didn't show up, it didn't rock their world. So what happens in your heart when God doesn't show up? What happens? And we have a promise that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them also. That's a promise from Jesus. And so what happens when we come here, when we have more than two or three, we're gathered in his name. What happens when you don't experience God in our service? What goes on in your heart? It ought to rock your world. It ought to cause us to look inward. It, it ought to make us ask the question, not God, where are you? But God, where am I? We're the ones that need to see what is going on in our heart. Now, I'm not talking about feelings here because feelings can lie to you and feelings can be manipulated. Not talking about feelings. I'm talking about the real sense that you get through the power of the Holy Spirit that God is here and that God is moving among us. And when that doesn't happen, something's not right in us. Maybe we're just distracted, you know, by problems or by a busy life or whatever. Maybe uh, we're really here for us. Maybe our hearts are somewhere else. But when God withdraws his presence, it's his love at work. It's his love at work to help us see what's going on in our hearts. It's difficult. It's painful. But when he does that and we recognize that and we start looking inward, good things are coming. Good things are coming in your life with God. He works with his absence. Now in verses 8 to 14... Uh, describes love working with suffering. Okay, so 8 to 14. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. 
For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. So these verses, they start off with that trumpet being blown uh, in, in these cities. And that was sounding an alarm. That's what, they, that's what that meant. They were sounding an alarm that danger was approaching. And the towns that are listed there are on the southern border of the northern kingdom, and Judah is to the south. And so uh, what these verses are describing is really a sweeping destruction of Israel and Judah. And it, span, it spans over 100 years. Okay, so Israel, they go down to Assyria in, in 722 B.C., and Judah almost goes down in 701 uh, but because of those reforms that Hezekiah was bringing to the country, uh, they got another hundred years out of it before they uh, were, were taken into exile. So love is working with suffering to bring about his punishment and to bring about reform to his people. Verse 12, Hosea describes how that suffering first came uh, to them. It said God was like a moth to Israel and dry rot to Judah. So both of those are pictures of, uh, they illustrate a weakening of a nation from within. Okay, so if you think about a moth, a moth what's a moth do? They eat clothes. <laughs> so a moth-eaten garment, easy to tear in half. Uh, Dry-rotted wood just crumbles in your hand. And so that's what, that's what the picture is. That's how the suffering started. Israel has been described as corrupt and defiled. And when God withdrew his presence from them, there was nothing in the way to keep their sins from doing what their sins were going to do. All he did was lift his hand off of them. He allowed them to do what they wanted to do. And his loving grace was removed from protecting them from themselves. Romans chapter 1 Verses 21 to 25, Paul describes how God allows suffering to come about in our life. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 28, it says that God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. And so Romans 1 tells us exactly what's happening there in Hosea chapter 5. God removes himself. He gives us over to our sins. And so there's no restraint to keep our sins from having their, their way in our life. This takes his hands off. And then when that happens, we become a slave to, to sin. And then after that comes suffering and death in its various forms in our life. And that's exactly what was going on in Hosea chapter 5. God withdrew his presence and let them go after what they wanted, and it weakened them as a nation. So they had no inner strength to fight the battle that was going to come their way from their enemies. Now, but the thing is, you know, there's, more, there's purpose in this more than just punishment, okay, for what they had done. God is trying to move them. He's trying to move them to a place of helplessness, and humility so that they will turn back to him 
That is his aim. Verse 13, uh, they, they, they are in a place of helplessness. They're in a place of humility in verse 13. And it's exactly what they do. They turn and ask for help, except they went and turned and looked for it in the wrong place. They went to the king who was attacking them. They went to the king of Assyria and they said, hey, we need your help. Now, um, several times in Hosea, they try to make deals with their enemies to try, you know, if they're stronger and we're weak, we need their strength. So we'll try to make deals. So they tried to pay them off. What they were doing was they were looking for a political solution to a spiritual problem. And that isn't going to work. So they pit nation against nation in, in Hosea, and trying to align themselves with the greater strength. Sometimes it's Assyria, sometimes it's Egypt. At the end of, ver- of, the, of the verse, God speaks what we're, we know to be true. You can't solve spiritual problems with a man-made solution. You just can't do it. Politics is not going to save our nation. doesn't matter who's out there. It's not going to save it. We have a spiritual disease And if you have a spiritual disease, then you've got to have a spiritual cure. Now, verse 14, Hosea describes God as a young lion tearing apart its prey. Reminds me of Wild Kingdom back in the day. On TV, Mutual of Omaha. You know, nobody's coming between a lion and dinner. Nobody. You know, and that's what God's saying. Nobody is going to save you, Israel. Nobody's going to save you, Judah. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to not exist as you have existed. So now God is not just allowing suffering. He is actually bringing the suffering into their lives, which is hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand because, you know, the question of suffering in the world is a a big question. And it causes many people to disbelieve in a loving God. You know, why are there starving children in the world? Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did a pizza delivery woman get shot in the face this weekend over here on the east side? Why? Why do we have to have places like the Hope Center to rescue girls from sex trafficking? Why? Why, when there is a all-powerful, loving, all-wise, involved God in this world, why is there suffering? I can't. I cannot answer that. The, the only thing I can really say is that we live in a fallen world and bad stuff is going to happen to everyone and really more bad stuff than we know about. And then I, I can also say that God's ways are higher than our ways and we aren't going to understand why. But we can believe and know and trust that because he's good, he's going to bring make use of this pain that we see in our lives. He will make use of every single pain. And here... He's using it to get them to turn and ask for help. Now, the last verse of this chapter is a picture of what God is doing when when this is going on. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. So he is not bringing suffering to the people to destroy them. He is bringing it to reform them. To turn them toward home. To get them to come back to him. And I'm telling you, that is some amazing love. That is amazing grace at work. I mean, think of all that they had done. And we're not talking about one year. We're not talking about a season of a year. We're talking about 800 years of spiritual immorality. Of faithlessness. 
all that time going by, forgetting God, giving themselves in pagan worship. All that time. And he is not throwing them out and starting with someone else. He he is not uh, exacting vengeance because he's offended and mad at us. He's working to get them to come home. He's working to get them to come back. God will use suffering to mold and shape us in our life to look more like Jesus, yes, but he will also use it to get his people to come back to him. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm not a native Hoosier. And it's not because I'm a boilermaker. I was not born in Indiana. I was born in Virginia. And we moved to Indiana in 1976 um, when I was nine years old. So my grandpa Fox, my mom's dad, he owned a bridge construction company. And mom and dad made the, the huge decision to come back to Indiana so that dad could work with my grandpa in his business, Fox and Associates. And so my dad is uh, a computer business engineer kind of guy, not a hard hat, jackhammer, pile driving kind of guy. And so the stories about him making that transition are pretty great to hear. Um, and I, I enjoy hearing all of that. We were a, uh, a church-going family, I would say. Um, but, but I would also say that Jesus was just a part of our life. He was not at the center of our lives. We were definitely craving other things other than God in, in our life. Now, as kids, um, we loved coming to Indiana. Uh, because that meant that we could play on all of the uh, construction equipment that was scattered around uh, the 10 acres where my grandpa's business was and where he lived. And so we used to climb on the cranes up the booms, you know, and swing on the cables that, you know, were hanging down. And uh, I got a picture to show you. This is a picture of me and my siblings with my grandpa on the dozer. It looks like Amy might be driving uh, a little bit there. So I think I might be grimacing maybe. Anyway, um, so we had we had a lot of uh, good times with with my grandpa. Now, in 1978, two years after uh, we came back to Indiana, my grandpa was involved in a bridge uh, uh, bridge job in an accident on the job. One of the crane booms that was putting a concrete beam into place um, snapped in half, and it it fell. And my grandpa was standing on one of the piers over the White River in Brookville, and it hit him and knocked him five stories down into the river. Now, I don't know how long that he lived after that, but I can tell you that for me as um, an 11-year-old, it was the first taste of big suffering in our life. I mean, my mom came home in hysterics the day that day. And I, I, I've never heard anyone cry that loud before or since that day. And she ran up stairs to her closet and she got in there with her Bible and she said she felt ashamed because she didn't know where to look for help. And so I have no idea if God brought that suffering to our family or if he just allowed it. But I know this, that it was the catalyst for my mom putting God in the proper place in her life. And she was the first one to do that. And then over the next 16 or 17 years in our family, one by one, 
we gave our lives to Jesus Christ. And we started following him. And we all have stories about how that came about, how love was working in our life with truth and his absence and suffering. We all have our individual stories about that. And I I live in my grandpa's house. And I have a picture of him in my bedroom. And when I look at that picture, it reminds me of how God used one man's suffering and death to bring life to our family. And I'm hoping for a reunion with my, with my grandpa. And I'm hoping he likes the renovations I've made to his house. But I know this. He will love the renovations that God made to our family because of his suffering and the suffering that brought to our family. It has borne incredible fruit. And though we miss him, he was a great man. Though we miss him, I don't think we would trade his presence for God's presence in our life. It has made all the difference. So are you suffering today? Are you in the middle of suffering today? God might be using it to shape your heart, and I say persevere in your suffering. But God might also be trying to use that to turn you to turn you away from the idols and things of this world and to get you to come back to him. Full devotion, full on layout. God, here I am. This is me, the mess that I am. Is that what he's trying to do? He's not wanting to destroy you. He's wanting to resurrect you. He wants you to turn. You know, God can only be in one place in your life. Well, yeah, one place. He can be first and at the center. It's the only place he can be because he's God. And you know what? You're the only one who can put him there. And what that means is you got to move. <laughs> you got to move out of those places in your life. And so if he's not there, God is, his love is at work in your life to get you to move so he can move in. Does he need to move in today? Does he need to move in? You know what he's doing right now? He's watching. He's waiting. He's ready to welcome you in, to embrace you, to say, come on home. Let's start again. Because that's the kind of God who loves. That's the God who's he's committed to it. Let's have our, our worship team come back up. There's a lot of things that I don't know. A lot of things I don't know. But I know this. I'm for sure of this right now. Love is at work right now in this very moment. He is at work. He is committed to you living your life for him. He's committed. He's not going to give up on you. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how long you've been away. doesn't matter where you were last night. doesn't matter what you said this morning on the way in. He is committed to getting you to turn around. He is so committed. I mean, I'm I'm like 110% sure of this. That he will not give up on you. He is going to, he's coming after you. How how do I, how can I be 110% sure of that? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. He's so committed to you. Coming to relationship with him. He sent his own son to die. To suffer and die. So that we could know him. So that we could be forgiven of our sins. 
we come into a relationship with him and have life with him forever. That is how committed God is to loving you. What do you need to do? Let's stand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to trust you today. We want to know that amazing love that is never failing, that is um, uh, uh, overwhelming, that calls us home. It's, it's working and working to get all of our hearts. I just pray, Lord, for uh, for those here today that need to move out of that spot in their life that you belong in. That you give them the grace to take that step. It's a step of death, dying to self. It's a step of seeking forgiveness, admitting that we're idolaters and we're a mess and we can't do it right. But it's a step into your arms, deep into your love, just diving deep to know how wide and how deep and how long and how high is the love of Jesus Christ. Help, help us, Lord. Take that step today. I pray for those that are under the suffering today, Lord, that you give them a courage, you give them strength, that you'd be present with them. Pray for those that need to hear that truth, that there's a crave list in their life, and you're not number one. Pray for those that are crying out by night, for your presence and they're not finding you, Lord. I pray you'd help them see what's going on in their heart and meet them there. Thank you, God, for being for being steadfast with us. Long-suffering. Thank you for Jesus who rescued us from our sins, from ourself. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us up, who keeps us from sin, who helps us walk in the way that you call us to walk. We pray he would fill us, bear fruit in us and through us, and we'll know eternal life today. Lord, we thank you for Levi. We thank you, Lord, for his life turning 11 years old, first baby at Living Streams. We pray your blessing on him as he grows. We pray his heart continues to be soft toward you and that he'd hear your calling on his life, Lord, how how to live it for you. Bless him, his family, and all this family here today. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people say amen.